Good morning, church. How are you? Good. Oh, that was a nice and loud one. That's the kind of experience you want to have when you get to church. I see some people with some nice suits this morning as well. It's a good day. You know what I'm talking about? You can. I'm calling you out in front of everybody. Hey, it's good to see you. I just want to remind us as we get church started this morning, there's three things here at Chapel Street that we believe deeply about what it means to be the people of God. First, it's about experiencing grace. Every time we come to church, my hope for you and our hope for you is that you get to experience the grace of God. And what we mean by that is simply that you would hear the story of who he is and what he has done for you. That's how we experience grace. We also want to be a place where you can grow in faith. And that means, just as we've been learning about in the book of James, that our faith is not just an idea. As followers of Jesus, we believe that our faith is meant to reach all the way into our hands and our feet, that we would go out and that we would grow in the same things that Jesus grew in in his life, that we would be like him. And lastly, that we want to be a church that makes an impact because we believe that the good news of Jesus, the gospel, is for the whole earth. Jesus says to take it to the ends of the earth. So we want to be a people and a church that impact our community and our cities with the love and the good news of Jesus. So this morning, everything that we do is about those three things. I hope you get to experience grace and grow in faith and be motivated to make an impact where you are. And we've got a couple of things coming up to, uh, to help you do that. The first is something really fun. We're calling it Be a Chapel on Your Street. So if you've been at Chapel Street for any length of time, you know that our name kind of arose out of this desire for us that we would be chapels on our street, meaning that a chapel, which is kind of a small house of worship, that all of our homes as members of Chapel Street would be a place where God is worshipped and where the love of God comes out of. And so this fall, we, the, our kids team came up with a really great idea of uh, kind of trying to do this over the Halloween season while neighbors around and communities having fun. So you can stop by in the lobby and pick up a card that'll explain all the details of this. But really the heart is for our people to engage with your neighbors over this season, to love them, serve them. Uh, we've got uh, packets of chili that you can make to give out to people as they're coming through. I always appreciate on those cold, when we're taking all the kids around, you know, and you're like, man, it's getting a little too cold for me. And then someone has chili instead of Sour Patch Kids. And I'm like, God bless you for your kindness. <laughs> So uh, yeah, it, different things like that. But we'd love for you to be creative because we want to think about this as a church. We want to prescribe for you the way that your neighbors want to be loved. We just want to be conscious and thoughtful that if we are going to be chapels on our street, that means we want to think about our neighbors, want to think about how we can engage with them, serve them, and bring the love of Jesus to them. So make sure you pick one of those up on your way out. And uh, the other thing that's coming up is a men's event called On The Mark. This is a really great event, uh, November uh, 11th, is it? Yes, good. Okay, I got the date right. I'm, I'm still employed. Okay, so November 11th, we're going to be hosting an event over at our Kesslinger campus. Uh, this, I'm really excited about this. If you're a guy, you get to go along. We get to throw tomahawk axes and shoot bows and everything that you have always wanted to do as a guy. Uh, but your mom never let you do it. Now you get to do it, right? You get to go out with a whole bunch of guys. You get to have a whole bunch of good food. Uh, the early bed registration for this is still going. If money is ever an issue for you at any Chapel Street event, whether it's a Bible study, whether it's an event like this, I just want to be clear. That's to help us kind of offset some of the costs of the events. That should never be a reason or a barrier for you to get involved. If you ever ha having a struggle, just please let me know. It won't at all offend me or bother me. We want to bless you. These events are for you and for your family. So please let me know. I would love to help you make sure that you can make that work. Uh, last thing that I want to mention is in a few weeks, we're going to be celebrating baptisms here at our North Aurora campus. It's 
going to be a great service. And afterwards, we're going to have a lunch together. We will provide the food. All we want is your company and your presence with us. So please think about staying with us. We'd love for you to invite friends to church that week to come and hear the story of Jesus and see that played out in the lives of people in our church. And then afterwards, we'll celebrate together with some good food. Uh, So please mark your calendar for that. That's November 12th. It's going to be a really, really great morning here at Chapel Street. Hey, well, now let me invite you to stand with us as we head into worship. I'm going to pray for us in a moment. But I just want to remind you again, in this place, this is not Chapel Street's house. This is not our place of worship. This is the place where we come to be welcomed by the living God who's given his son for us, who loves us. And so let's jump into worship with that heart and see what God has for us this morning. It's good to be back with you here again at uh, North Aurora campus. Uh, I love being here and hearing um, the way you worship and sing together. I love the closeness of the atmosphere, so it's great to be with you here again. Let's start with a question. Um, How many of you have ever attended a high school or college graduation ceremony? Most of us have been to a graduation ceremony. This is my wife and me as one of our son's college graduations. These are always happy times. Um, Most of us would also agree uh, that Graduating with a degree, whether it be high school or college or grad school, is not only a good thing, but it's uh, only the beginning. It's like a first step, right? It's, it's a goal, but it's not the end goal, because the, the greater goal is using that degree to get a good job, to start a career, uh, to actually do something. Not so with a guy named Michael Nicholson of Kalamazoo, Michigan. You see him here with his stack of degrees and all those tassels over there. Let me tell you about him. He's now in his 80s, but by the time he was 71 years old, he had earned one bachelor's degree, two associate degrees, 23 master's degrees, three specialist degrees, and one doctoral degree for a grand total of 30 university degrees, which makes him a graduate of the class of 1963, 67, 69, 70, 74, 75, 77, 76, 80, 82, in 2010. Now, most of his degrees are related to education. Uh, if you looked at the list of them, there's educational leadership, library science, uh, school psychology, but there are others too, home economics, health education, law enforcement. He even has several seminary degrees. He was in school for 55 years, but he never got a job in any of the degrees that he studies for. Here's how he explains it himself, quote, I just stayed in school and took menial jobs to pay for the education and just made a point of getting more degrees and eventually I retired so that I could go to school full time. (laughs) Now I'm all for education, I have several degrees myself, but there's just something a little bit sad, maybe weird, about a guy with 30 university degrees never having done anything with those degrees. Now today we're going to learn that it's it's possible to do something like the same thing with our faith, at least according to James. We continue our series uh, from the book of James called Faith Works Today. Just by way of a little bit of review, uh, James, as we've learned, is the younger half-brother of Jesus himself, and he's writing to Jewish background followers of Jesus, Christians, and he's concerned that there's a growing disconnect between what they believe 
and how they're actually living their lives. Above all else, we've learned that James is intensely practical. Uh, he is very direct, even blunt often, and he pulls no punches. He's calling his readers, and to us, I believe, uh, to a faith that works. A faith that works during times of trial, a faith that works during temptation, a faith that works in everyday life, the way we relate to each other, the way we talk, the way we live. And last week, we saw that he's particularly concerned with what he called partiality, that is um, a preferential treatment that was happening in the church for the rich and a, a, a dishonoring of those who are not rich or dishonoring of the poor. Now, today we're going to look at James chapter 2, verses 14 to 26, um, what some consider to be the most controversial passage in the book of James, and some would say in the entire New Testament. So I'm going to read as you look at the screens or look at your own Bibles, James chapter 2, beginning in verse 14. He writes, What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? That word can be translated works. Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well-fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if, not, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe that there is a God, there is one God, good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. You foolish person, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness, and he was called God's friend. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do, and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead. Talk about two things today. First, what faith is, and then secondly, what faith does. First, what faith is. Uh, how many of you have heard the name I recognize the name of Charles Blondin. At South Street, only one person raised their hand. Somebody did, a historian back there. Uh, sort of obscure history. But Charles Blondin was a French acrobat who became famous in 1859 when he walked across Niagara Falls on a tightrope with no safety net. He'd like to be called the Great Blondin. With some 25,000 people watching, he, he, he stretched a 1,300-foot-long tightrope 160 feet above the water, again, with no safety net, and walked across. And over the next few months, in 1859, he walked across the falls dozens of times, each time taking greater and greater risks, doing crazier and crazier stunts. And here are a few of them, just a few. He walked backwards across. He walked uh, blindfolded. Uh, he walked on stilts. And he once walked pushing a wheelbarrow. We have a photograph of that one. Now, crowds grew larger and larger that summer, uh, 25, 50,000 people watching, cheering wildly in amazement. At one point, after pushing the wheelbarrow across, 
the legend is that he announced to the entire crowd, do you believe in me? And they said, we believe. Do you believe that I can push a wheelbarrow across with a man in it? We believe. We believe. Then he said, who will be that man? <laughs> and not surprisingly, no one volunteered. But the one person who did believe in Blondin uh, was his manager. True story. A man named Harry Colcord who allowed Blondin to carry him piggyback style across Niagara Falls. Now, that's either faith or complete insanity. Makes me just queasy to look at that. Verse 14, look at what James says. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? I want to make sure you hear that and engage with this. Let me read it again. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? And the way that sentence is written in the original language makes it clear that it's a rhetorical question expecting the answer, no. Can such faith save them? No. Now, if you're paying attention at all, if you've been around the Bible, you've been around the church, if, you, if you've put your faith in Jesus, you might be saying to yourself right now, in fact, you should be, wait, wait, well, hold on just a second, Pastor Brian, hold on. Did James just say what I think he said? Did he just say it isn't enough just to have faith? Did he just say that faith without deeds is useless? Isn't that a contradiction of what the Apostle Paul says in multiple places in the New Testament? For example, Ephesians chapter 2. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith and not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, same word, deeds, so that no one can boast. Or Galatians chapter 2. We know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. So what gives? So what gives? And if you're wondering about this right now, if you're kind of feeling a, a, a conundrum of the mind, James would say, good. That's exactly the effect I'm going for. That's what I want you to be asking. Martin Luther, the great Reformation theologian, was so bothered by James' emphasis on deeds or good works that he called the letter of James an epistle of straw. And he made no secret that he would prefer it not even be in the New Testament. Now, in Luther's defense, he was arguing at the time against the medieval church uh, that was teaching that good works, especially financial good works, giving money to the church was the way to salvation. In those days, uh, there was something called indulgences. If you paid for an indulgence, you could get your loved ones out of hell into heaven, even if they were already dead. He was fighting, he was fighting against that corruption, so he focused on faith alone. So how are we to understand today? Let me help you remember who Paul was and who James was and who they were writing to in their letters. First, Paul. Paul was a Jewish background follower of Jesus who was called to take the gospel to the Gentile world, that is, to the non-Jewish world. So his, in his letters, he's writing primarily to those who were not Jewish, who were deeply worried that they could not be real followers of Jesus unless they also obeyed all the Jewish religious laws. So Paul is emphasizing, no, 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 no. Your salvation is by faith in the grace of Christ alone. Now, James, on the other hand, 
also a Jewish background follower of Jesus, but he's writing to Jewish background believers. He's the pastor of the church in Jerusalem. So he's thinking about Jewish people who knew the Jewish law and they've heard that the gospel now. And they realize now that salvation is not through the law, but rather through the grace of Jesus Christ. So they are thinking, some of them, therefore that obedience to the law just doesn't matter anymore. It doesn't really matter if I obey Jesus or if I obey anything because I'm already saved. So James is focused on the result of salvation and grace that is a changed way of living. They're both talking about the same gospel, but from two different perspectives. I'll share more about that in just a minute. Let me give you a little mini illustration of this. Um, how many of you have ever had a root beer float? Any fans? This is an A&W root beer float, which is like the Cadillac of <laughs> root beer floats, the grandfather of all root beer floats. Um, I was going to make one for you today, but I couldn't really figure out how to keep the ice cream cold between South Street and here and stuff. But anyway, so I'll just have a picture. But what is a root beer float? Obviously, it's root beer plus a nice scoop of vanilla ice cream. If you have the root beer without the ice cream, you still have something good. You have root beer, but you don't have a root beer float. If you have the ice cream without the root beer, you have something good. You have a dish of ice cream, but you do not have a root beer float. It takes both together to make a root beer float. I think that's what James is saying, although he probably wouldn't say it that way. He's saying faith and works, they simply go together. You can't have them apart from each other and have genuine faith. James says, what good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? And then he says, can such faith save them? This is very subtle, but I want you to see this. It's important. He says the phrase, such faith. What does he mean by that? He's talking about a faith that the hymn is not really faith at all. That's why he says, can such faith, can people who believe like that really be saved? What he's saying is that that kind of faith is actually superficial faith, nominal faith, faith in words only, and therefore it's no faith at all. James uses the word faith at least 15 times in this letter, so let's ask ourselves, what does he mean by faith? Let me mention three things. First, he means that faith points to a firmly held belief or conviction. Uh, James has already taught us that as followers of Jesus, our faith in him is to be so firm, so sincere, that it cannot be threatened by trials. It cannot be overwhelmed by temptation. It's a firmly held conviction. Uh, let me switch the analogy. Think about uh, air travel, for example. If I were to ask uh, you today, do you believe 100 tons of steel can fly? If I asked you 200 years ago, everybody would have said, no, not possible. I ask you today, I think most of you would say, assuming it has an engine and fuel and a pilot, yes, yes, 100 tons of steel can fly. And you would say that because you've observed airplanes flying in the sky, you've heard the testimony of people who have actually flown in airplanes, and you've actually maybe done it yourself. So you have a firm conviction, belief in airplanes. So faith is a firmly held belief. But in what? In what? The second thing James means, assumes, when he uses the word faith, is that faith has a specific content. And all of his readers, he believed, Jewish background followers of Jesus, would also assume that faith, that word faith, has a specific content. Way back in uh, verse 1 of chapter 2, he writes, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in what? 
The faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. So for James, faith in the Lord of glory means to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, who died and rose again, and that through him and only through faith in him, we receive new hearts through the forgiveness of sin, new identity by being adopted into his family, new purpose that is to serve and bear witness through his church, and a new destiny that is reigning with him in the new heaven and earth forever. That's what James assumes about the content of faith. Unfortunately, that's an assumption we can no longer make in our modern American culture. The zeitgeist, that's a cool German word that just means spirit of the age, the spirit of the age of American culture is not terribly concerned about the content of faith so long as you have faith, right? Sort of a faith in faith approach. Consider these quotes from one of the popular spiritual gurus of our day, Deepak Chopra. In his book, The Seven Spiritual Laws of Success, he writes, When your actions are motivated by love, the surplus energy you gather can be channeled to create anything you want, including unlimited wealth. Sign me up, right? right? Surplus energy, unlimited wealth. But notice the content of the faith is you. You are the center of that faith. In an interview recently, Mr. Chopra also said, the lower quote, I want to offer the possibility that Jesus was truly, as he proclaimed, pay attention, as he proclaimed a Savior, not the Savior, not the one and only Son of God. Rather, Jesus embodied the highest level of enlightenment. Jesus intended to save the world by showing others the path to God consciousness. Almost the exact opposite of what James is teaching us. Back to our airplane analogy for a moment. Let's say you firmly believe, you're con convinced that airplanes can fly. Uh, you decide you want to fly from Chicago to New York City because you've never been to New York City. So you go to O'Hare, you buy a ticket, you stand in line at the gate, you get on the airplane because you firmly believe that 100 tons of steel can fly you to New York City. You sit in your seat next to a fellow traveler. Uh, who also believes firmly in air transportation. You strike up a conversation. You say, it's my first time. I've never been to New York City before. I can't wait to see the Statue of Liberty. They look at you strangely and say, but this plane is going to San Francisco. You say, but I believe. I firmly believe this plane is going to New York City. No, this plane is going to San Francisco. See, it's possible to believe. It's possible to believe sincerely and to be sincerely wrong. Our culture no longer believes that. As long as you believe, whatever you believe in sincerely, that's true for you. Good for you. James is assuming that the content of our faith is Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, dead, crucified, and risen. Thirdly, James is assuming that faith is not only firm belief, not only firm belief in a specific content, the gospel of Jesus, but faith that also produces action Amen. or deeds. That is, true faith is more than intellectual agreement with an idea. And James drives this, home, this point home with, with his customary bluntness. Verse 18, but someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I'll show you my faith by my deeds. If you believe that there is one God, good. Even the demons believe that 
and shudder. I want you to get this. Let me read it again, this time in the New Living Translation. Sometimes it's good to read text in multiple translations. They can take on a little more clarity. And the New Living makes this easier to understand. Let me read it for you. Now, someone may argue, some people have faith, others have good deeds. But I say, how can you show me your faith if you don't have good deeds? I will show you my faith by my good deeds. You say you have faith, for you believe there is one God. Good for you. Even the demons believe this and they tremble in terror. I saw a Gallup poll the other day that found that 81% of Americans today say they believe in God. 81%. That seems, seems like a good thing, right? But believing in God is not that which makes you a Christian or a follower of Jesus. Because James says 100% of demons believe in God, and they tremble in terror. James is saying that true faith is more than intellectual agreement that God exists. Genuine faith in Jesus produces a a certain kind of behavior, a certain kind of life. James is saying we cannot separate Jesus the Savior from Jesus who is Lord. Cannot separate Jesus the one who saves us from Jesus the one who is Lord who we follow. Even demons believe God exists. Even demons know that Jesus is Savior. However, they do not surrender to him as Lord. See, it's possible James is writing to people who saw the gospel as a kind of um, get-out-of-jail-free card. You know, uh, since salvation cannot be earned, since Jesus forgives sin, then good. There's no longer need to follow his teaching. There's no longer, things, no longer necessary to do things like love your neighbor as yourself because he forgives me anyway. James says, no. Jesus is Savior, but He's also Lord. And when we experience His grace, the result is a greater desire to follow and obey. And that leads us to the second point today, that is what faith does. What faith does. A long time ago, years ago, I heard a a popular Christian speaker and author named Tony Campolo uh, speak in person. He was a great speaker, great storyteller. And he told a story. You have that picture of Tony up there? Yeah, he's, he's older than this now. He's, he's like 85 years old. But he uh, told a story about being invited to uh, speak at a large church. It happened to be a women's ministry gathering, several hundred women in a large auditorium. And before he spoke, uh, the leader of the ministry took him aside and said, we have a tradition here where the speaker will pray to start the session. So if you'd be kind enough to ask for a few requests and then pray for those before you talk, we'd appreciate it. He said, sure, I can do that. So he stands up to speak, and so he asks them any requests. And the very first request that came from the, from the audience was a lady who said that she wanted to pray for a certain mission ministry, I no longer remember what it was, that needed, like, needed $5,000 within a week, or else they'd have to shut down a certain part of their ministry. Please pray. And Tony heard the request, and he paused for a minute, and he thought for a moment, and he said, um, I don't think I can pray for that. And it got really quiet and awkward in the room. He said, I, don't, I think it's wrong for us to ask God to do what we have it within our power to do ourselves. So he said, here's what I'd like to do. I'll take out everything in my pocket. And he grabbed an offering basket, and he put what was in his pocket in the basket, $20 bill. And he, said, and he just handed it to the first lady. And they started passing it around. And by the time I got over back to them, he counted up the money. Right there in front of him, he had $5,000 and a little change. 
Here James is making the same point. I saw an anonymous quote recently that said, sometimes we pray and God moves the mountain. Sometimes when we pray, he hands us the shovels. Genuine faith is a working faith, James says, a faith that works. Now he offers two illustrations out of Old Testament history. Verse 20, you foolish person, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he was called God's friend. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do, and not by faith alone. Now, James here is quoting directly from Genesis chapter 15. Abraham believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. He's talking about a story that every Jewish background person knew, the story of Abraham and Isaac. And he's saying that it was Abraham's obedience to God that was evidence of his trust and faith in God. And then God credited him with righteousness. Then he gives a second example, a much, much different example. Verse 25, in the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. Much, much different example. And the story is a, but it's also a story that Jewish background people knew backwards and forwards. It comes to us in Joshua chapter 2 in the Old Testament. Rahab was a Canaanite woman. That is, she was a foreigner from a pagan background who was also a prostitute. And she is the one who protected two spies sent by Joshua to scout out the, land, the, the city of Jericho. Now, both James and the author of the book of Hebrews state that it was Rahab's faith in the God of Israel, Yahweh, that saved her, and that her faith was evidenced by her actions. Something else to notice here, that just as a little sidelight, it would, hard to, it would be hard to think of two more different people than Abraham and Rahab. Abraham, one of the greatest characters in the entire Old Testament, became the father of the nation Israel that produced the Messiah. And Rahab, a foreign woman from a pagan background, who was also a prostitute. But it was faith that made them both righteous. Faith in the God of Israel that made them righteous, and then their faith produced obedient action. Now, here's the point James is making. We are not saved by what we do. We're not saved by our deeds, by our works. We're saved for our deeds and our works. If you were to try to write the gospel out as an equation, this is what it might look like. A lot of people would write the first equation. That is, works, you try to do more good than bad in your life, add a little faith to that, whatever you believe in, boom, you get salvation. That's the way most people in our culture think about salvation. That's not the gospel. The gospel is faith, and the faith has a specific content, Jesus, the Lord of glory. That produces salvation. Nothing else needed. Salvation, then, to demonstrate that faith, produces works and good deeds. Two very different equations. We must understand both equations. And we have to understand that the difference between Paul and James is which end of the equation they're starting from. That is, when we put works before faith, we're trying to earn our salvation. And Paul warns us against that. You can't do it. can't be done. You can't do enough good. 
But if we have a salvation that does not produce works, James is concerned about that because genuine faith always will produce genuine works. When my wife and I were first married, um, about a year before we came to Chapel Street, then First Baptist of Geneva, we lived in South America for six months. We lived in the country of Bolivia, where we were on a short-term mission assignment to teach English as a second language in a small Christian university in Santa Cruz, Bolivia. Uh, toward the end of our, uh, during one period of time there, we took a trip from Santa Cruz uh, up to La Paz, Bolivia. La Paz is one of the highest cities in the world located at about 12,000 feet above sea level, spectacular views all around, uh, a, a big city. So we visited the city and so forth, and the last night we were there, we had dinner at a nice restaurant, and we were walking back to our hotel. Uh, it was about 9 or 10 in the evening, dark and cold. At altitude like that, it gets really cold at night, kind of the cold that cuts right through you. So we're walking quickly back to our hotel, and as we walked, I, I heard a sound. It was kind of a soft, whimpering sound. At first, I thought it might be a stray dog or something on the street. And, and we were just walking. I didn't really slow down, but I looked over to the side. And I realized it wasn't a dog. There was a little boy, six or seven years old, crouched down, huddled on the sidewalk next to a wall. And he was whimpering. He was crying softly in the night. And we were walking. Our hotel was there. It was cold. We had to fly out the next morning, and all these thoughts are going through my mind, like, why is, why is he there? Why is he, why is he out so late? Why is he by himself? Is he in pain? Is he hungry? What, is he cold? And with all those thoughts that were going through my head, and my Spanish isn't very good, what can I really do? So we, we walked back to our hotel. The next day, we flew out back to where we were living. But that nameless little boy... The sound he was making that night never left me all these years later. I can still hear it. And I realize now that what I felt in that moment was faith, was Christ in me responding to a little boy's need. But I had a lot of reasons not to stop, a lot of reasons to get on with it, a lot of reasons, a lot of excuses why I couldn't do anything. And in that moment, James would say, my faith, although... I believed it was genuine, actually became useless to that little boy. And James would say, in that moment, dead. James says, okay, you believe in Jesus? Good for you. You got your degree? You got your diploma? Good for you. Now put it to work. Show me your faith by what you do. Show me your faith by how you live. Show me your faith in action. And he says the same thing to us today. It's now in prayer. Lord God, thank you for your word today, for this ancient letter written from a, by a man who knew you, who was transformed by a confrontation with the risen Christ. A man who today, through his words all these centuries later, reminds us, challenges us, to be people not just of talk, people not just who say we believe, but people of both faith and action. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Just before the benediction, remind you as you head out today, make sure you pick up the Chapel on Your Street packet. See what kind of fun you can have with that in the next couple of weeks. Our benediction comes from Hebrews chapter 13 today. 
May we go now in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, and may he equip us with everything good for doing his will, and may he work in us what is pleasing to him, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Have a great day.